Hello and welcome to the latest CSF podcast on axial spondyloarthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis alongside our psoriatic arthritis podcasts. And we'll also be supplying you with monthly side decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of axial spondyloarthritis. First of all, allow me to introduce myself and my co-hosts. My name is Atul Devdar. I'm a professor of medicine and medical director of rheumatology clinics in the division of arthritis and rheumatic diseases at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And today I'm joined by a wealth of experts in the field of rheumatology, including Professor Hideto Kameda, professor of internal medicine at Toho University, Dr. Sophia Ramiro, a consultant rheumatologist and senior researcher at Zeidelland Medical Center and Leiden University Medical Center. And finally, Professor Xenophon Baraliokos, Professor of Internal Medicine and Rheumatology at the Ruhr University in Bochum and a Senior Consultant and Scientific Coordinator of the Rheumatology Center in Hern, Germany. And of course, if you want to find out more about us and the papers we discussed today, please head over to the CSF website, which is www.cytokinesignaling.com. Professor Kameda. Hey, thank you too. Our first paper discusses new and emerging treatments for SPA. In particular, it shines a light on treatments within AXPA. Following this, our second paper sought to assess the long-term safety, durability, and efficacy of bimekizumab in patients with active AS. Now, over to you, Professor Baliakos. Yes, thank you very much both for this uh, kind introduction, and I'm very happy to take this up. Um, as it was mentioned, we have different papers to discuss, and our first paper is entitled Emerging Therapies for the Treatment of Spondyloarthritis with focus on axial spondyloarthritis and was authored by Jürgen Braun, Uta Kiltz, and myself. Now for the study background, we need to take into account that for classification purposes, the differentiation between radiographic and non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis is based on the degree of the structural changes that we see on the conventional radiographs of the sacroiliac joints. Neutralization of uh, different cytokines, such as, for example, L17A and F, may be more efficacious than the alone um, neutralization of L17A. Development of dual and uh, B-specific inhibitors for L17A and F um, follows this rationale, and biologic DMATs for um, targeting L17A, they have been already approved for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and access from arthritis. They include Sikikinumab and Ixikizumab. So we sought to um, produce a review that aimed to discuss the emerging aspects and the emerging agents for the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis in that regard. Now, if we go over to the, to the different cytokines that we have uh, discussed in that review, I would like to start with IL-23 antagonists. Just for information, IL-23 um, itself is a heterodimeric cytokine composed of an I12B, I12P40, it's called um, subunit shared with I12, and an I23A, it's called I23P19 subunit. Inhibitors of I23, which have been shown to work on psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, 
and chronic inflammatory bowel disease and mainly ulcerative colitis are there. However, efficacy has not been shown in axial spondyloarthritis and also not in axial psoriatic arthritis or psoriatic arthritis with axial involvement, as we call it at the moment. For the JAK inhibitors, baricitinib has been made in studies in, studies in rheumatoid arthritis. However, it has been successfully administered in patients suffering from dermatitis, alopecia areata, and also severe COVID-19 very recently. However, it has not been studied in axial spontaneous arthritis today, to date. Um, in biochemical assays, frigotinib preferentially inhibits the activity of JAK1, showing a higher um, potency, five-fold higher potency for JAK1 as compared to JAK2, 3, and um, TIC2. The preferential inhibition of JAK1 is used to justify that anemia, um, a possible consequence of JAK2 inhibition, occurs only rarely with this um, compound with treatment with ficotinib. Tofacitinib's mode, on the other hand, um, resolves, revolves around selectively and irreversibly blocking JAK1 and JAK3. We also need to know that FDA has recently released a black box warning because the results of the oral surveillance study that we in the meantime all know have highlighted a greater risk of malignancy in uh, that study. Regarding now um, other modes of action such as the I-17A and F um, 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 aspects that I mentioned in the beginning, bimikizumab is the drug to um, mention here. In a study first published in 2020, data from a population of patients suffering with uh, ankylosing spondylitis showed a greater proportion achieving the primary outcome of ASAS-40 with bimikizumab um, treatment over placebo. Um, there was a significant dose response that was observed and similar efficacy has been demonstrated for both radiographic and non-radiographic AXPA. And further efficacy data has also highlighted the sustained improvement in disease activity over the years. This means over the follow-up of three years. In this investigation, nasopharyngitis and um, upper respiratory tract infections uh, were the most frequent treatment emergent adverse events, as we also know them from the vast majority of biologic demands. For filgotinib, um, filgotinib is also a JAK um, inhibitor. It has been shown to be efficacious and well-tolerated in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis who have not responded to first-line non-steroidal anti-rheumatic drugs, as also the other compounds that I've mentioned. The main safety concerns of uh, JAK inhibition therapy is cardiovascular um, adverse events and thrombosis, largely due to publication known um, here. Um, I mentioned oral surveillance again, which have resulted in the recent FDA black box, black box warning that I just mentioned. However, the only significant numerical differences uh, were in serious infections, BTEs, and herpes zoster infections. And data um, um, from animal studies have raised concerns about sperm toxicity, the very recent or the most recent data and information here is that this warning is now no longer um, uh, an issue because studies have shown that this does not really occur with filgotinib. There has been a study um, that uh, was just finished and um, data have been out. Um, they will be published very soon. Now, claiming other aspects such as structural damage, modification, access to arthritis. Um, the question is whether or not um, biologic DMARs or any DMARs are important in that indication and that uh, topic. 
We know that structural damage in arthritis so far has been mostly considered this, um, for the spine um, since our patients have been advanced, those are the ones that have been included in studies. And there we talk about new bone formation. And several studies already have suggested that the number of erosions may also be reduced by any biologic uh, anti-inflammatory treatment even after a relatively short period of time. So this means that both the sacroiliac joint changes with erosions, but also the new bone formation in the spine are relevant for that topic. Now, despite a growing body of evidence, there is some disagreement on whether or not uh, anti-DNF agents especially, um, and this has been shown in more studies than in any other uh, modes of action, uh, may decelerate structural damage. My personal opinion is that this is indeed happening and we do have a much lesser structural damage progression over time with those biologics as when we compare data, historical data mainly in patients not treated with biologic DNS. Now, for the conclusion overall, um, what we've seen in that review and we've seen from the body of evidence that is out there, both bimekizumab um, and filgotinib, um, are the ones that are presented rather emerging therapies in the field for spondyloarthritis. Bimigizumab especially is being studied in access spondyloarthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and PSO psoriasis. These are data that are now upcoming and we'll, we will see very, very, very soon in our daily practice. Whilst there is an increasing body of evidence for the efficacy and safety of Bimigizumab, of course, we also know uh, that we need longer-term follow-ups to understand that drug better. And of course, for filgotinib, further studies are required to confirm the benefits. There are now uh, attempts ongoing for such studies. Published data has shown no new safety signals for filgotinib as a JAK1 selective inhibitor. And again, sperm um, toxicity does not be, seem to be a concern based on the most recent information that will also, by the way, affect also the, um, uh, the safety um, uh, information be, being given with the drug also from the uh, official uh, bodies. The next set of agents in the pipeline are agents targeting L17A and JAK inhibitors overall. With the idea of combining agents um, um, of different uh, modes of action needs more studies. Um, since we know that although we have good results, also other patients, there might be patients, these patients who just do not achieve a very good response or even remission. And of course, we need more data for these kind of combinations. At the moment, this is not on the table in terms of official treatment um, aspects. Now, on the other hand, in contrast to inhibition of L17 inhibitors, JAK inhibitors are also working in RA, as I mentioned before, and there is, um, of course, this limitation that L17 inhibitors do not work in rheumatoid arthritis, even though some effect may be there. Some studies have shown, reported some, some, some effects, but they are certainly not in the, in the amount that we would consider them for indication. Um, there have been overall four JAK inhibitors, including filgotinib in that case, that are approved for rheumatoid arthritis. And there's also several head-to-head trials ongoing with bimigizumab in plaque psoriasis. The last one showed that the bispecific inhibition that bimigizumab does with L17A and F may indeed be superior to inhibition of L17A alone. Uh, for example, when we compare it with high doses of sinicinumab, uh, this means the 300 milligrams. Whether this now may also occur in patients with access to arthritis and psoriatic arthritis, we do need uh, to understand that. And obviously, study data remain to show that. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Baraliokos. And I was going to ask that question, uh, what you were mentioning at the very end, as to whether 
the uh, double or dual inhibition of IL-17A and IL-17F is better than IL-17A alone. And that's one of the questions that is asked by rheumatologists to me when I have presented this data also about bimekezumab in the past. And you're right that unless we do head-to-head -head studies, it is difficult to know uh, whether the dual inhibition is better than single inhibition the way it was shown in, psori in psoriasis. Um, and we don't have those data available for either psoriatic arthritis or axial spondyloarthritis. Um, one of the other questions I have, and that I'm going to raise and ask to Dr. Ramiro is, um, we are not discussing here the new ASAS uh, ULAR treatment guidelines because with the expansion of these agents that we have at our disposal, I mean, there was a time when we had nothing to treat axial spinal arthritis with apart from non-steroidals and of course, TNF inhibitors were the big change and big uh, um, bright dawn. But now we have got IL-17 inhibitor, IL-17A and F inhibitor, we have got JAK inhibitors. The question that comes up is which one would you use first? And uh, Dr. Ramiro, we are not discussing this here, but can you just, in short, tell us about your experience with the ASAS ULAR treatment guidelines and how they guide us about which drug to use first? Thank you for the question and for bringing up the ASAS ULAR recommendations here. I think it, I will have to make it a very brief uh, update on, on, on it. And actually, in patients that are eligible for treatment with biological or targeted synthetic DMARTs, Actually, we are not making immediately a clear choice between them because patients can get any of the drug classes uh, you mentioned. So TNF inhibition, IL-17 inhibition, JAK inhibition. And unfortunately, we do not have head-to-head -head, uh, studies. So it's quite difficult to make a choice about which is more efficacious, comparative efficacy. But uh, we know, and the task force wanted to emphasize that, that there is the current practices to start with a TNF inhibitor and with an IL-17 inhibitor. And there are reasons for this, reasons being the more accumulated experience, more accumulated safety data, also from observational studies and from daily clinical practice. And also the fact that from JAK inhibition, we only have uh, trial data and with some potential safety concerns when we look at oral surveillance in uh, population of patients with RA, although we don't know whether it really applies to patients with actual SPA who are younger, who have less comorbidities yeah. and so on. But in, in, in short, all, any of the drug classes can be used while giving preference and, and emphasizing that current practice is TNF inhibition or IL-17 inhibition. It's also yeah. important to look at extramusculoskeletal manifestations because they can guide us in terms of the treatment choice. Whereas in terms of actual efficacy and efficacy on peripheral disease, we do not have um, clear evidence of different efficacy across the drug options in terms of extramusculoskeletal manifestations we have. And therefore we brought in a new recommendation with uh, patients with uh, re uh, recurrent uh, uveitis or with active IBD, then there is a preference towards uh, monoclonal antibodies against TNF. Whereas in patients with uh, uh, significant psoriasis, there is a preference for uh, IL-17 inhibition as these molecules have shown exactly in, in PSA that they have um, a higher effect on, on the skin. Yeah. And I think I would like right. to keep it here to not extend yeah. <laughs> too much into the recommendations. I, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's wonderful. Well, uh, why don't you continue Dr. Ramiro with your second, with our second paper for this podcast?
Yes, sure. Thank you very much. So over to our second paper entitled Safety and Efficacy of Bimekizumab in Patients with Active Ankylosing Spondylitis, three-year results from a phase 2b randomized control trial and its open-label extension study, which is uh, authored as the first author, our colleague Xenophon Baraliakos, and several of us in this podcast have also contributed to co-author it. So we have just heard uh, an introduction on uh, bimekizumab, so I will not uh, repeat. We are aware of uh, it being an IL-17 uh, inhibitor with dual uh, inhibition of IL-17A and F, and that clinical studies have shown efficacy in psoriasis is even with showing superiority against multiple therapies, also efficacy in psoriatic arthritis and in actual SPA. And we have here the, still the phase two study um, that was conducted several years ago, so the B-Agile uh, study. And now we, uh, in, in which uh, it was demonstrated that there was a rapid and significant reduction in disease activity at week 12 with bimikizumab in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis. And now in this study, we are looking at the long-term safety, tolerability, and efficacy of bimekizumab up to three years of follow-up. So patients with active uh, radiographic actual SPA, or also formerly known as uh, uh, ankylosing spondylitis, who completed the dose range ranging 48 weeks B-Agile randomized control trial were eligible to participate in this open-label extension in which participants received 160 milligram of bimekizumab every four weeks. And here we are looking at safety and efficacy results through 156 weeks, so roughly three years. Missing data were imputed using the most conservative approach, so non-responder imputation for binary outcomes and multiple imputation for continuous outcomes. And so now moving to the results from uh, baseline until week 156, 280 of the 303 patients uh, experienced at least one treatment emergent adverse event. This brings us into an incidence rate of 141 per 100 patient years. The most frequent adverse event, as common as we see in these biological therapies, was uh, nasopharyngitis uh, with uh, an incidence of uh, 8.1 per 100 patient years, and upper respiratory tract infections with an incidence of 5.0 per 100 patient years. Additionally, 67 of the 303 patients had mild to moderate localized fungal infections, so giving an incidence of 9.8 per 100 patient years. And, and this fungal infections, uh, uh, um, so were mainly uh, candida uh, infections, 3.7 per 100 patient years. And 23 of the 303 patients had oral candidiasis, so 3.0 per 100 patient years, while 10 patients had serious infections, 1.3 per 100 patient years and no cases of active tuberculosis were reported. Uh, as we are used to seeing that extramusculoskeletal manifestations are reported as safety uh, signals in trials, so this was still the case in this trial. This will possibly and hopefully change in future trials, but for now we have here the information on active inflammatory bowel disease with 1.1 uh, per 100 patient years, anterior uveitis 0.7 per 100 patient years, and MACE, so major adverse card cardiovascular events, which were adjudicated 0.3 per 100 patient years. So these were all infrequent. 
uh, about efficacy, we can say that it was demonstrated and, until week 48 and then it was sustained in the open label extension. Uh, if we look at uh, week 156, so three years, uh, the non-responder imputation analysis showed 54% of patients meeting uh, as a uh, 40 40 uh, criteria, so that's 73% when we look at observed cases, and 28% of patients achieved partial remission, that's 38% of observed cases. As this reduced from baseline, baseline with a mean of 3.9, to week 48 with, with a mean of 2.1, as does, and week 156, we had a mean as does of 1.9. Patients showed sustained improvements in pain, fatigue, physical function, and health-related quality of life. So in conclusion, the safety profile of bimekizumab was found to be consistent with previously demonstrated findings, and no new safety signals were identified. Bimekizumab delivered sustained long-term efficacy in patients with AAS, including reduced activity, improved patient function, and improved quality of life. And overall, these results support bimekizumab as a potential treatment option in uh, actual spondylar arthritis. And as we have just heard, there will be news soon uh, in terms of uh, phase three trials. So stay tuned. We will have updates on that uh, soon as well. Okay. Thank you, Sophia, for your very nice talk. And because Atu already raised the comparison between our 70A inhibitor versus bimekizumab, I want to raise another question. So bimekizumab versus rodalumab, it's our 17 receptor A inhibitor. So it actually inhibits our 70A, F, and C. So what do you think about the comparison between bimekizumab versus rodalumab? Thank you very much. That's also a very good question. I have to tell you that what uh, what we know is at this moment uh, only um, data from laboratory and from how these cytokines uh, behave, but we do not have any idea in terms of comparison in, in, in humans. So until I see any comparative data, I cannot pronounce about uh, different efficacy of these molecules and I would love to know whether there is superior efficacy of one versus the other, but as I don't know from bimekizumab compared to sikekinumab or izikizumab, I don't know compared to bradalumab either. And I sincerely hope that that will be then the future and the next phases that we will see in actual SPA that we start seeing more head-to-head -head trials that can truly inform us in terms of the treatment algorithm and inform updates of future recommendations. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this expert podcast brought to you by the CSF. We really hope you found it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from, so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we have discussed today, head over to cytokinesignaling.com where you'll find detailed summary slides of each of the papers. See you next time.